Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 today. Your effect on the world. Your effect on the world. We turn from the description last week, last three weeks, in fact, of kind of the ideal Christian, you know, like it was kind of an abstract concept of here's how a Christian is. They're uh, poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin and the sin of the world. They're meek. That's they're humble. They're gentle. They're pure in heart, morally, and in their commitment to Christ. Uh, Christians are not filled with strife, causing conflicts. Instead, they're peacemakers. And now, when believers are living these things out, this is the effect that it'll have on the world around them. That's what the message is about today. The main point of the message is that followers of Jesus Christ ought to affect the world around them in a positive way. Followers of Jesus Christ ought to affect the world around them in a positive way. You affect the world around you positively when, and you'll see the outline here, you affect the world around you positively when you, number one, live as salt of the earth, number two, when you live as light of the world, And number three, when you do your deeds in a way that God gets the glory. Those three things are found in the message today. And Jesus said, these are the effects of the Christian on the world around them. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. That's my wife's, one of her favorite verses, verse 16 there. You affect the world positively around you when you live as salt of the earth. So see that statement there. You are salt of the earth. Jesus starts out now with a metaphor, okay? He's going to begin uh, this little section here with a metaphor. And I just want to make a comment on this that doesn't have all that much to do with the message. But Scripture, we say at Calvary Chapel and that, you know, we interpret the Scriptures literally, right? Well, we understand that there are metaphors in Scriptures. So some people have a problem with it when you say, Uh, when they say, how do you interpret the Bible? And somebody will say, well, it's all allegorical. Everything's kind of a metaphor. It's a spiritual thing. That stuff's not meant to be taken literally. Some people will say that. Um, But people ask me, and I'll say, I interpret the Bible and take it to be literal. And they'll say, well, you know, how strict are you about that? Well, okay, I obviously don't think that a believer is a pile of white granular substance sitting here, right? The Bible is filled with metaphors. Like when Jesus says that I am the bread and I, you know what I mean? And I'm the wine. He's not literally the bread, all right? 
Uh, there's some people that, that teach that he literally is the bread when they do communion, that that's literally Jesus Christ. No, it's a metaphor. We take the Bible to be literal, but that means that when we see a metaphor, we seek after the literal truth that's being taught through the metaphor. I just wanted to point that out before we go further. Um, you know, we, we take the Bible literally, but we understand it as metaphors and word pictures and analogies and all these things in it. You are the salt of the earth, he says. Now, Jesus likens believers to salt. Now, that's kind of odd, right? We have to talk about how salt was used in Jesus' day, right? Because that's what we should wonder. If he's calling believers salt, then our, our mind should say, in context, culturally, how was salt used? You know, how's Jesus using this word salt? Some people have heard that word. Like, that's kind of been a word in like the last few years. People say, man, you're salty. You know, like when you've got a bad attitude, you know, that's not what he's talking about, right? But how, how was salt used in Jesus' day? I'm going to give you a few different things. Um, and I believe these are what Jesus is getting at when he says that you are the salt of the earth. Now, first one, salt in Jesus' day, most commonly was used as a preservative. So they didn't have refrigerators, freezers, of course. After meat was butchered, it was rubbed with salt to preserve it. The salt would arrest the decay. It would stop the meat from putrefying. Now, the preservative effect of salt. So the implications of this, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the implications would be, you know, he's implying here that obviously the world is decaying, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't think that the world's getting better and better and better, and eventually we're going to evolve into like through science, we're going to create a better man. And Jesus doesn't believe any of that stuff. Although men have tried to say that throughout the history, you know, um, there's been periods of time. In fact, John Lennon, you know, the Beatles, they say, I got to believe it's getting better. That's that sort of theology. That's that sort of worldview that through evolution, we're all going to evolve and things are going to get better. Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus knew as any of the rest of us can tell through a look at history, that things are decaying. And so that's one of the implications here. He says, you're the salt of the earth. Salt has a preserving effect. It has to preserve something that's decaying. That's one of the implications, that the world's decaying. The world is rotting because of sin. But those experiencing and letting God's power live through them have a preservative effect on the decaying world around them. Now, believers that are allowing God to work in them and they're um, walking after Christ, they're following after Christ, being obedient to him, doing the things that he's called us to do, Christians have a purifying, or I'm sorry, a preserving effect on the world around them. Now, don't underestimate the importance of this ministry that you have. You, you have the ministry of salt, if you would. You have the ministry of preservation. Heck, you might be the only one at your job that like when you're around, people don't say evil stuff. You might be the only one there. You might be the only one in your family that's following after Christ. And you show up to the family reunion and everybody goes, oh, great, the Christian's here. Well, it's because you're having a purifying, preserving effect on that situation. So don't underestimate the importance of this ministry of just being, having that preservative effect on the decaying world around you. Now, this tells us too, you're the salt 
of the earth. Now, if salt's going to preserve meat and keep it from putrefying, it can't just sit in the bag or the salt shaker to use a 2021 uh, 20, uh, illustration, right? You got to get out of the salt shaker and get onto the decaying meat, right? You got to get rubbed into the world around you. And that's what God does with Christians. He leads us into places. He's put you in the life that you're in to have that preserving effect right where you're at, whether it's Norris Springs, Clear Lake, Manly. He's put you there to have a preserving effect on the world around you. Don't underestimate the importance of this ministry. Christians aren't to hole up in isolation, but let God sprinkle them into the world around them. And um, that's an important ministry. Now, I want to say this, if the world is rotting around you and not being preserved, maybe in your family, then the salt isn't doing its work. So that causes us to think about what Jesus says, you know, down the road here, and we'll get to there in a minute. What if salt loses its flavor? It's possible that that's happened. If you notice the world, you know, you're not having the preserving effect on the world around you. Maybe it's because uh, something's wrong. Now, so that's the first ministry of salt, preserving. Here's another one, another ministry of salt, flavoring, right? Oh, my goodness. Some food tastes terrible without salt, right? Like, you ever watch Restaurant Impossible with Chef Robert Irvine? Has anybody ever watched that show? Am I the only person in the world? That, yeah, yeah. You don't, did she just say she hated it? Yeah, I love Robert Irvine. That dude's hardcore. He goes into a, a failing restaurant, and in two days, and with $10,000, he turns their whole business around and like rehabs the people, and they're crying, and families, all the problems get all worked out, and he's awesome, man. I love Robert Irvine, and I think he's a Christian, too. But anyway, he will go into the kitchen, and he will cook, and he'll show these restaurants how to cook, and he'll take the salmon. He'll take the uh, skirt steak. He'll take the tilapia. It doesn't matter. And he'll just put salt on it, just a little bit of salt. And he doesn't kill it with other seasoning. He just puts salt on it because he says salt brings out the natural flavor of what is in the thing. And that's what I believe partially what Jesus is getting at. Christians bring flavor into life. Christians bring flavor into life. Now, some people misunderstand. They, you know, I, I was confused for the longest time. I thought, Christian life is dull and drab. That's what I thought. And so I lived on the dark side for the majority of my life. And I thought, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and techno music, and, and dance parties, I thought that was like the flavor life. But I will tell you, in my own experience, and the experience of countless others, that living for anything materially eventually becomes drab and boring, right? I mean, how, how bored are we with the same old, like, sexual jokes, right? Oh, gosh. I can't imagine if you're a woman, you know? Like, you see these men in this world, and you're just eventually like, bleh, you know? Or how about the pursuit of money? Every day, the first thing on your mind is your bank account and your investments and all this stuff. It's just boring eventually. It's drab. It's an existence. You know, it's like rolling a ball up a hill every single day of your life. And that life is boring. Although the devil convinces us it looks like that's the flavorful life, but actually the Christian life is the life of flavor. I mean, I have more fun and enjoy life so much more than I ever did in my life on the dark side. And uh, Christians ought to uh, have the flavoring ministry 
Christians filled with the spirit of the living God, filled with the joy of our salvation, bring flavor to life, right? Not just a tragedy when you run into a Christian that makes it look like gloom and doom. They don't get it. That's the bottom line. If you see a Christian that makes Christianity look like a gloom and doom burden, they don't get it. And that's okay. They will. A lot of us start out like that. And we're so mad at ourselves from our past that we love Christianity because we can beat ourselves over the head, you know, with rules. And we love the rules at first, but we find out that it's not about rules. It's about grace and about God and about being filled with the Spirit and with joy. And people start to see that in our lives, and, and that brings flavor to the world around you. I'm telling you what, when people uh, see, uh, you know, people living like this, it's a great ministry. Now, like salt brings out the best flavor of food, affecting you know, it positively, Christians should affect the world around them positively, bringing preserving effect, bringing flavoring. Here's another ministry of salt. It's the final ministry of salt that I will shake out. <laughs> Perhaps there are more. You might say, oh, there's, salt does more things. Uh, they, they might. They, they might. It probably does. But here's the final one that I'll talk about today. Uh, it creates thirst. Salt creates thirst. I'll tell you what, the movie theater people, they know that, right? You put the salt on the popcorn and then here you got to go back. That's why they give you the 50-gallon drum of soda, right? And you spend 200 bucks on it because you can't get enough. And you've got three straws. You've got one in your mouth, one in your ear. You know what I'm saying? you got to pump on that thing. You're pumping soda into you and just shoveling popcorn into you. And you're like, yes, I love salt. And you go to the doctor and he says, sodium's got to go. And, uh, you know, because they know that if you pump people full of salt, it's going to make them thirsty, right? And that's the ministry of the Christian. They make people thirsty, right? Have you ever been around a Christian and you come away going, man, I want to know more about the Bible or I want to know more about Jesus because look at this person, you know? Look at, I don't even know what it is about him, but I'm getting thirsty just watching him, you know? And um, the thing is, is we all have this thirst that we're born with, right? And Jesus satisfies that thirst, right? Remember what he said to the lady at the well? If you drink this water again, you're going to be thirsty. But if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. That's what he's talking about, right? And, and when a Christian has drank from the well of God, experienced the river of life, other people see that and they go, you know, I don't know what it is, but that person's satisfied, they're not thirsty. They're not constantly striving after this and that and they're unhappy all the time and they're empty. No, this person, and then you start to get thirsty and you want more. Now that's the ministry of a Christian. Preserving, <clears throat> flavoring, thirst creating. Now this begs the question, does, does your walk with the Lord make people thirsty? Now, what if, look at what he says going on next. Uh, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Now, salt can lose its properties, right? I mean, just think about it. If it gets contaminated with impurities, right? I was watching the show the other day, um, Storage Wars, right? I don't know if you guys ever watched that show. I like that show. But unfortunately, there's like, I don't like some of the humor in it and stuff. But there's this dude on there, and he wears this not of this world shirt. Have you guys ever seen that clothing brand? It's Jesus, you know, if you're not of this world. And he wears these Christian shirts all the time, but he's always gossiping about this other dude. And he's always trying to like, 
get at him. And he's always doing these things that are just not Christ-like, it was not, not apologetic at all. And that's the image that A&E is giving out to the world about Christians. Hey, he's a hypocrite. He's got this forgive and, you know, and, you know, Jesus message coming out. But at the same time, he's not forgiving. And God help me, I'm not a great example of Christ either. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that I'm perfect in this guy, you know, whatever. But the thing is, is it seems to me like it's easy to lose our flavor as Christians when we become contaminated with worldliness. You got a Christian that's out getting drunk and people see them at the bar. You have lost your saltiness altogether. People don't take you seriously at all, right? It's just unfortunate. That's what happens, getting contaminated uh, with the effects of the world around us. And I'm not saying people don't struggle and have problems. And, you know, if you have problems and you repent of those and you're seeking God's heart and you're seeking healing, you're plenty salty because people see you seeking and admitting your wrongs. That's salty. But to go on about sin and act like it's not a big deal, you're contaminated and you're not making anybody thirsty. In fact, you're making people want to spew this whole Christianity thing out of their mouth. And uh, so that's what he's getting at. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Well, it can't. It's good for nothing. And that's the next statement that he makes there. He says, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown, uh, thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. When salt in Jesus' day was contaminated and when it's lost its flavor, they threw it out on the walking path and it still had enough you know, tang in it to kill the weeds. And it was literally trampled under feet. Now, this statement that Jesus just made is like an ultimatum, right? It's not just a statement. It's an ultimatum. Jesus is saying, be salty or you're good for nothing, right? That's what he's saying here. If salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. And he's directing that right at his followers. And it's a strong warning. How can you lose your saltiness? Well, let me give you a few examples here. I have nine of them written down. You could stop reading scripture your mind stops getting renewed. You start being like the world. You lose your saltiness. Stop praying. You're not connected to the life source. You're not, you don't have power in your life. Uh, you can live so much like the world that nobody can tell you're a Christian. That loses saltiness. You can lack integrity and character. Never talking about Jesus. That's not salty. You know, never mentioning Christ. You know, it's, it boggles my mind. Um, well, I'm not going to be, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm trying to avoid being like that. Um, you know, Paul said this, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. But you hear what he says, Colossians 4, 5, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. A Christian should be talking about Jesus, talking about the kingdom. A Christian should be interested in other people getting saved. And so they're talking about Jesus, right? And that's salty. You can lose your salt by never talking about Jesus, you know? Now, thinking only about your own needs, yeah, that's a way to lose your saltiness. Um, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, and I'm not trying to say I'm the best at that, you know. I know like three of their names, you know what I mean? I, I, I could do better in this. Um, if, you know, how about this one? A, a, a theoretical theology that never touches the practical day-to-day -day life, you know. Christ, sometimes Christians are all theological. They can tell you all the Bible verses and all the prophecy and all this stuff, and they can tell you in and out about the Bible. But it, that's, and that's great. You should be able to. But they don't have, it doesn't translate down into like the daily living, you know. And that's not salty. Another one, you know, Sunday only lukewarm Christianity. A refusal to repent of sin and live as a hypocrite. Those are things that people lose their saltiness over. That's a downer, I know. But um, man, I think 
the warning is here, you know, in the scripture. I'm not putting a warning in where there isn't one, you know. You look at some of the churches that have lost their saltiness because they've caved into the pressure of man and there's no power there. And so the church now, you know, anytime somebody's got a problem, they don't go to the pastor for counseling or the elders to get prayed for and they don't get biblical counseling. They send them off to psychologists and psychiatrists that don't even know Christ. And they say, oh, this problem's beyond us. Listen, there's no problem beyond this unless you've lost your saltiness, unless you've lost your power, Right? And they, they teach mindfulness and new age techniques and meditation to try to get people to cope with their anxiety rather than teaching the Bible. That's a church that's lost its salt, right? It's lost its flavor. And as according to Jesus' words, it's good for nothing but to be trampled under the feet of men. So you and me, we are to affect the world positively. And we do that when we live as salt of the earth. Now, number two, when we live as light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, you are the light of the world. Next powerful metaphor here Jesus uses is light. The implication is the world is spiritually dark, but you are the light of of the world. Remember when Jesus said in John 8, 12, he says, um, I am the light of the world. When Jesus walked the earth, he was the light of the world. Now he's saying believers are. Believers are the light in the darkness. Now, this is kind of interesting, right? Because the Bible says that men, humans, um, the, when the Bible just says men, it always means Well, most of the time it means men and women. You guys know that, right? The Bible says that men hate light, but love darkness. All right, doesn't it? So it's kind of interesting. How can they be the light of the world when they hate the light, right? We like darkness far more than we like to admit, you know, as Christians. You might say, I'm the light of the world. I say, let me ask you a question. Are you sure you don't like darkness more than you admit? Because how about when the searchlight of the scripture shines on you and it points out your sin? Don't you want to run and hide from that? One way people do it a lot is they deflect the searchlight onto somebody else. They listen to a sermon for somebody else. You ever done that? I used to do that. One time I told this pastor friend of mine, I said, hey, I got a sermon you have to listen to, man. It's just so convicting. You got to listen to it. He goes, it's probably for you. And then he just like hung up. (laughs) Yeah. And he's right. It was. Because that's pride when, when you're listening to the sermon for somebody else. If you're listening right now saying, man, I sure hope he records this so I can give it to this other person that really needs to hear it. You probably need to hear it, right? No, because Christians, as, as humans, we hate the light. We really do. We want to stay in the dark. You know, we really do. We'll come out of the light just so far as we're comfortable with, you know, but then we want to go back in a little bit, you know. I don't have the sunblock on, you know, I got, I got to, you know. Yeah, people have the sunblock, right? And it means you need this, not me. That's sunblock. It's SPF like, no, <laughs> don't do that. Humans think that there's light in this world, though, don't they? Don't they? Apart from God. They think, oh, we don't need God for light in this world. We do good deeds. The reason they do is because they compare themselves next to other people. That's why. It reminds me of, you know, Christmas. I love to put up Christmas lights on my house. And uh, they're not really cool or anything. Some people do the cool stuff. But at nighttime, you're driving around and you look at some Christmas lights and you think, 
Wow, that house is really bright. Oh, that one's even brighter, right? But when the sun comes out, if the lights are still on, you still can't see either of them, right? That's how men are. That's how men and women are. They say, oh, look how bright that one is. Oh, look how bright that one. But when the sunshine comes, Jesus Christ, you can't see any of that light by comparison, you know? Men hate the light. And what they do then is they like their own light, so they compare themselves next to other people because I might be brighter than you. My house might look a little better than yours. So how in the world... Can Jesus say, you are the light of the world when this is going on in my rotten flesh? Well, Christians are the light of the world in the sense that they reflect God, right? The moon has no light of itself, no light of itself, but it does reflect the light of the sun. Christians have no light in themselves. Humans have no light in themselves. The light in humans is darkness because it's pride, self-centered, and everything else. They have no light inside themselves. But Christians, with the Holy Spirit, living as Jesus, you know, the Beatitudes living like this, they reflect the light of Christ into this dark world, right? I was looking at the sky last night, two nights ago, and it looked like this. Did anybody see the moon? It was just like a little sliver, right? And I always make a joke with my wife. I'm like, oh, God's cutting his fingernails, right? Because it looks just like a fingernail, you know, like it's a little sliver of it, you know? And um, it looked like that the other night. But that had me thinking sometimes the moon is full, sometimes it's just a sliver. Sometimes I'm reflecting God's light, sometimes only a little bit. And then I started to pray, God, help me to always be the full moon, you know? God, help me to always reflect the light uh, of you, always bright, always, Lord. Help me not to be, you know, waxing and waning in my walk with you, Lord. Christians are the light of the world in the sense that they reflect the measure of light they've been given from Jesus Christ. Now, He says, going on, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Ancient cities, they used to put them, you know, for the sake of defense up on hills, and they were placed uh, there for strategic purposes. And, of course, the light of the city, you couldn't deny it. It's kind of like driving around in the countryside in Iowa. You know, you're, you're pulling up, you're driving down the road, and you're pulling up to Charles City, and you see the light of the city. And that's what he's saying. The light of the Christian, the light of the church, cannot be hidden, right? But here comes a little bit of a warning, verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now, that's ridiculous, right? Here, I'm going to turn this lamp on over here, but let me go ahead and just put a cover over it, you know? Uh, you know, I thought about doing that. I thought about bringing this little, little floor lamp out here and just putting something over it so you can see how ridiculous it is. It doesn't make sense to have the light of Christ inside of you and then hide it, you know? But unfortunately, some people do. Some people want to hide this great thing. They don't want to reflect the light of Christ because, you know, a lot of times you know, you're embarrassed or, you know, or something else or you're you know, more interested in pleasing man than God or, or whatever it would be. But we want to hide our light. Uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? That's what that song's about, I think, isn't it? And now, city up on a hill can't be hidden. Don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. Look at what he says about the light and what should be done. And here's application right in this. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, a Christian should be giving light to all who are in the house, right? What does that light do? It keeps us from stumbling. It shows us what the truth is. It shows us our sin. It exposes sin. This is what a Christian should be doing, be giving light to everybody in the house. I can't think of a more practical application for a parent right here. A parent should be that light that's giving light in the house. And then the kids are like the little sprouts. And as the sunlight is shining, the kids grow into strong and mature Christians, you know, as a result of the light shining in the house. That's the role of the Christian. A light is meant to shine, to give directions, to help others not to stumble, to expose sin. Should a Christian hide their relationship with Jesus? Well, no more than someone should turn uh, on a light and then put it under a basket. That's what he's getting at. How can you tell if your light's been put under the basket, if you've put your light under the basket? How can you tell? Well, there's a few ways. Um, First of all, you ask yourself, are you walking in the light that's been shown to you? Are you living out the things that Jesus has exposed through his word? Are you living these things? Are you living in light or are you living in darkness? I think you're, you and the Holy Spirit have this, you can figure this out. You know, you can ask him to show you. But, you know, if you need a little help, um, one question I think is good to ask is, like light, am I exposing darkness and evil in this world. I mean, you won't be too popular with everybody if you are, but am I exposing the darkness? I watch some of these pastors on TV that are just speaking the truth, and it's not the most popular message in the world, but they're exposing what's going on in you know, different elements of society. And Are you doing that? Are you exposing the darkness in the world? Do people have no problem bringing their filth to you do people have no problem bringing their filthy jokes to you? Because that's a sign that your light's gone out. Like if people want to come up to you as the Christian and have a foul mouth just like the rest of the world, that's a sign that you're not salty and that your light's gone out, unfortunately. Do people gossip with you? Do people come up to you because they know they can talk with you about other people? Because if that's the case, your light's gone out. You're not salty either. Does your circle of influence talk about kingdom things? Those are some questions that I can ask myself to determine if my light has went out. If your light is shining in the darkness, you know, the darkness won't really want to have anything to do with you, you know, because darkness flees when the lights come on. Now, being Christ's disciples, I just want to give you a word of application while we're here means uh, spreading the light to everyone that we have contact with, especially in our homes, jobs, our marriages, our schools. I must understand that God has placed me in the life that I'm in to shine the warm, attractive glow of Jesus Christ. That's my job as a Christian. That's, he's called all Christians to reflect that glow of Christ in their lives, right? As I reflect the light, just like plants, people around me will grow. Um, and like I said, this is really apparent with parents. If you're shining the light of Christ in your home, then you're kids are going to grow up affected by that light and they need that light to grow spiritually this is the ministry that's been given to christians in fact paul talks about it second corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 he says for it is the god who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ 
God shines his light in your heart, so you'll shine the light out to others, right? And uh, Paul words it a little differently than I just did, but his was a little better. But All right. So, like salt affects food positively, light affects people positively as it illuminates, gives guidance, exposes sin, helps them not to stumble, and ultimately shows them what Christ is like. How glorious, right? That you and I have the privilege of showing the world what Christ is like, right? It doesn't mean you have to be perfect, you know, and so you got to get that out of your mind. We have the opportunity to show what forgiveness and humility and repentance and all these things look like to the world around us that sees nothing but arrogance and pride and evil and perversion. And what a blessing that is. You affect the world around you positively when you live as salt of the earth, when you live as light of the world, and when you do your works in a way that God gets the glory. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, just take a minute on this sentence and let's break it down. Here's some application, right? And you could just circle these different things in this verse in your Bible if you wanted to, if you're a Bible circler. Um, first of all, let your light shine. There's one thing. Then the next thing, before men and, of course, women. Here's the next thing, by good works. And the next thing, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. So a four-part application Jesus gives. Let your light shine before men by doing good works in such a way that God gets the glory. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting. You need to contrast this with what um, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, take heed not to do your charitable deeds before men. Well, wait a minute. I thought you're telling me here to do my works in such a way that people see them. But in Matthew 6, you're saying, don't do my charitable deeds before men. In Matthew chapter 6, what he is talking about is doing charity so you will get noticed, right? Like the guy that says, I'm all in for donating $100,000 to the new wing on the Nyack building, and I just want to do it as charity. The only thing I want you to do is put my name on the side of the building. That's not charity, partner. You're buying a plaque for your name to hang on so you get the glory, man. Don't you get that? Or when somebody's on, you know, Facebook holding their golf check, you know, because they're going to donate to the food bank and they're shaking hands, that stuff is doing your works in a way to where you get the glory. It is, you know, and don't let anybody finagle you, you know, because that's what man loves. Man loves the glory, right? So what here, what he's saying is we should live our lives in a way where people see our good deeds, the things that we're doing, and because they see them, we're, you know, they say, man, praise God, you know? Wow, I knew that girl back when, and she was a mess, but look at her now, you know? Praise God, you know? You can do your works in a way so where God gets the glory. As humans, we really do have a wicked tendency to get glory for ourselves, don't we? We have a way of telling people how much we give, you know. I mean, sure, we don't set out to do it, but we have a way of sneaking it into a conversation just right at the right place, you know, just in such a way where people will notice us. We have a way of telling people, boasting about how we've just been ceaselessly praying for the person 
Oh, I've been praying for their salvation since 1970. It's probably why they got saved. Some, with their choice of words, attempt to appear to be spiritual, more spiritual than they are. I was deep in prayer the other morning, like 4 a.m. And, uh, you know, I was just worshiping the Lord in the Spirit, seeing dreams and visions. You see how spiritual I am by the way I'm telling you these things? I mean, I was up before the rooster. Um, you know, I see visions all the time. I talk way more about my visions than I do about Christ. You know, I'm doing things in a way to where I'm getting the attention, right? Look how spiritual that guy is. Look at the way that he prays. I could never pray like that. I don't even know that prayer language. I don't get it. I'm inferior Christian. That's the effect that you have on people when you do this. Some people, you know, just try to get acceptance and recognition through their spirituality. Now, we shouldn't because we're accepted in Christ. You know, we don't need the recognition of man. That's the remedy for this sort of thing is, oh my gosh, I don't need the attention of man. I've got all the attention I can handle from the Holy Spirit. You know, God loves me so much. I'm accepted in the beloved by his grace. I don't, I don't need to get attention from others. Some people, though, are just in love with what Christianity gets them. They get recognized as a spiritual person. They get admiration, respect for their titles. Um, people are interested in their words, their opinions. They're more in love with the stuff than they are with Jesus. And Jesus is warning against that. Don't do your works in a way to where you get attention and glory. How do we do it correctly? Let's turn to a positive note. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. You remember that? Where um, Peter and John going up to the temple, and they're going to the, at the hour of prayer, and they go and they see a guy that's uh, been lame from birth, and the Lord gives a uh, gift of faith to Peter, and he manifests the gifts of healings uh, this day. And he goes up to the guy, and he says, Silver and gold I don't have, but what I give to you, I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, Rise up and walk. And he lifts the guy up, and he starts dancing around, and like, you know, hopscotch all over the place. And you know what happens? Now, take note of this if you want to be involved in ministry. Peter and John standing there had this opportunity, the devil's opportunity. And what they could have done, the people were coming around them going, oh my goodness, Peter and John, you guys are amazing. And they said, why do you look at us as though we did anything? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did this, right? So you have to watch out for that. You can take the glory. They, could have they would have been disqualified from ministry right then. I'll tell you what. God does amazing things through some people. Sometimes they get these healing ministries that are on TV. He does amazing things, and then they blow it because they start taking the glory for themselves. It becomes a ministry of the devil, not a ministry of Christ anymore. And so you've got to watch that. But that's a good example. Just read how they did it. They said, I didn't do this. God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he did it. And um, then they got beaten for that. You guys remember the story. How about another one? Let's just look at some of Jesus' examples. And I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of them, but I'll just refresh you. I'm sure you've read them. You've read through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus heals a paralytic, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. When he heals this paralytic, here's what it says after, um, after the miracle was done. Now, when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. They glorified God because Jesus healed a paralytic, right? Dude, if, you, if God used you to heal a paralytic, could you handle it, honestly? You'd come to church, church next week and you'd have like a, like a badge, paralytic healer. You'd be like, you'd be by the snack table back there. Anybody paralyzed? Know anybody that's paralyzed? 
and paralyzed uncle? I'll heal him. Oh, wait a minute. Zap. <laughs> you're done for. You're on the shelf. <laughs> you know, you're disqualified from ministry. But man, imagine, imagine Jesus to be able to do the works like this. And so I, I don't know what, what that looked like exactly, but he did his works in a way to where God got the glory. Now, Jesus heals great multitudes. It says Matthew 15, 29 through 31. And here's what it says in verse 31. He, I mean, he heals multitudes of people. They were all bringing the sick and lame to him. And then after it, it says, So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus did his works in a way where he didn't get the attention, where God, the Father, got the attention. No, he heals and forgives the paralytic in another instance. You remember the guys, the four friends? Good friends, by the way. They take the guy on his bed uh, to Jesus to go to the healing meeting, you know, the prayer meeting and uh, the Bible study, and they can't get in there, right? And so do you know what they do? That's right. They go up on the roof, they take off the panel, and they just drop him right down. Man, they must have believed. Can you imagine trying to get the guy back up out of there? I mean, okay, well, uh, this one didn't, you know. Oh, geez, the guy's on the bed like, ah! <laughs> you know, I mean, this would have been a crazy scene, right? You're in the house watching this like, whoa! <laughs> you know, that's uh, impressive. And after that was done, uh, Mark 2.12, immediately he rose, took up his bed, this guy, and he went out of the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And Luke records the same incident, but I want to read what he says because it's funny, you know. He says this, um, And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. <laughs> no kidding. I saw this guy come through the roof, and then all of a sudden he was paralyzed, and he's not, and he's carrying his bed back home. That's odd, you know, and Jesus isn't over there being like, okay, let's get a selfie, man, because I got a blog. I got to get my fit, you know, listen, come on, get, make sure to get the angle just right. So this guy's in the background, you know, like maybe people will donate to my ministry, right? Uh, Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead. Do you remember that? This gal loses her son and Jesus comes up and he says, don't weep. What? Are you kidding me? My son just died. And he says, no, don't weep. And he heals and brings this guy back from the dead. He resuscitates him, right? And he brings him back to live again. And Luke 7, 16 says, that fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. Amen. Now, Jesus heals a woman with the spirit of infirmity. You remember her? She was double bent over. I don't even know what that looks like, but ever since I read that, I've seen people around town. You ever seen a guy around town walking like this? And you're like, oh, that guy's double bent over maybe. You know, maybe it's, a, it's actually a medical condition where you're, you know, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. He, he, Jesus heals this gal. Stand up. After years and years, can you imagine the irritating pain of this just degenerative disease, you know, condition just twisted from an evil spirit, you know? And Jesus uh, lays his hands on her, Luke 13, 13. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Man, Jesus cleanses 10 lepers. You guys remember the story? He does great things for a group of 10. Guess how many say thank you? One. Just one. 
Isn't that like lepers? No, it's not just like people, right? I don't know any lepers personally, so I can't speak for them. But I know people are like that. You could do a nice thing for 10 people and one of them will say thank you and you're just like, what the heck? Wow. Uh, you know, and one comes back to thank Jesus, one of these lepers, Luke 17, 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice glorified God, Right? The death of Lazarus, John 11, verses 1 through 44. Um, John 11, you, you know the story. Lazarus had been dead. Jesus was, you know, wasn't there. He came late. Why didn't you come sooner, Jesus? And he would have lived. He will live. Um, and John eleven four. when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Right? Oh, my goodness. Man, I, I, are you excited about this? I'm excited. God's getting the glory, right? Now, how about this one? Last one. Jesus dies on the cross. His whole life. Maybe the most important work that he did. Luke 23, 47. So when the centurion saw, that's the Roman guard that was there at the cross. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, certainly this was a righteous man and he glorified God as Jesus hung on the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was kind of, man, I do something sacrificial for my wife or something like that and like, I am tempted to like try to get some glory for it. You know, like, Hey, you remember, you know, as my little sick flesh wants to get some glory. You know, we're so bad at this, man. We're bad at this, right? We want everybody to notice this. But even Jesus, as he hung and he took his last breath, all glory went to God. All glory went to his Father. Do you do your deeds so people will glorify God and not you? You can, because you don't need praise and recognition from any man or woman. You are already accepted, is what it says in Ephesians in the first chapter. You're accepted in Christ. You know, this, this is a good application to think and pray about this. How can you live your life as salt and light in a way that people glorify God? That people look at your life and they say, praise God. How can you live your life like that? How can you do your good in this world where people want to know more about Jesus? How can you get out of the way so where people can see God? I've been thinking about this. Are there ways that you can glorify God even more with your life? I mean, maybe you tell people. You tell people your testimony. Maybe you do that. Maybe you tell them what God's delivered you from. Maybe you use your Facebook or something if you're still on that or your TikTok or whatever it is these days or your Snapchat. Maybe you use them for those things. Maybe you say, look at the things God has done in my life. You draw glory to God. You know, you're glorifying God by being here. You know, this is great. You're here studying and studying the word. Are there even more ways that you can point people towards the Savior? Now, in conclusion, as you live out the Beatitudes as Jesus wants you to, you have a flavoring, preservative, thirst-creating effect on the world around you. You're reflecting the pure light of Jesus Christ into this dark world. 
in living your life for Jesus, people see your good deeds and they say, praise God, Jesus must be wonderful. Look what he has done in you. Now, living this way begins when you're born again. If you're outside of Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sins and you cannot live this way. But maybe today um, you'll hear this message and you have heard it and you're stirred and you are not reflecting the light of God. You know that. And you love darkness more than light and you know that. But you're stirred today and you want to be forgiven of your sin. You want to receive eternal life. You want to be salt and light. It starts by admitting that you are poor in spirit and that you're a sinner, that you have nothing to offer God for your salvation, just a bunch of sin and darkness and brokenness. And that's how it all starts is by admitting this to the Lord. I am messed up, Lord. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. I've lusted. I've done all these things. I've been drunk. I've been high. I've cheated people. I've done, you know, all the things. I haven't done the things that I should do. I haven't loved the people in my life like you love them. That's how it starts is coming to him like, God, I admit I need your salvation. I need you. I'm poor in spirit. You say something like, Heavenly Father, I admit that I fall short of your glory. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of your glory, God. Now, I might have some light compared to other men and women in this world, but next to you, it's no light at all. I admit I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've lusted, I've failed to give you glory. I admit it. I confess my sin and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. I believe in what he did for me there on the cross outside of Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. So that's the next step is believing. It's admitting and now believing. Believing that Jesus came and he died for your sin. God sent his only son uh, so whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. And so that's the next step is believing. Just believing this message. That's what God wants you to do. Confess. That's the last step here. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I stop running today. I come humbly before you. I confess you are God and I need you. Thank you that you accept me, Father, because of what your Son did for me. I now welcome your Holy Spirit to come inside my life. I surrender and give you control of me in Jesus' name. If you want to be saved today, you want to live this life of salt and light, God wants you. He doesn't care what you've done, evil, what you've left undone. He wants to take you just as you are just as you are. And this isn't some code of burdensome rules. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants to bring healing to your life spiritually. He wants to bring healing to your soul. He wants to do that now. His arms are open. And you can come to him.